What are the critical and creative ideas being written about today? Where do we find them? How do we make sense of them? And what do they mean for us in the decisions we make individually and as a society? My name is Benjamin Miller, and this is Inverse Converse. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. The sound quality in this episode leaves something to be desired, for reasons I don't entirely understand, but which I'm sure are completely my fault. So I apologize, and I hope you'll bear with me while I look into better recording equipment. Thanks. Let's get started. I guess this episode is Alexander Brodsky, a law student at Yale and a writer and activist who has just released a book. Uh, would you like to say a word or two about that? About the book? Yeah. Sure. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I finally got the, the object version of it uh, this past week. Uh, it is an anthology of feminist thinkers and activists um, putting forth basically an affirmative vision for a better, uh, more equitable future. Fantastic. I ordered my copy of it. Oh, really? I'm oh. very excited to read it. I'm so happy. I will definitely put a link to that in the description. Um, in this episode, we are talking about the market goddesses. That's an article by Catherine Cross, published September 4th in Jacobin Magazine. The topic is the notorious Ashley Madison, the um, affair-oriented dating website, and specifically the thousands of bots or uh, imaginary women that it turns out were the source of most of the conversation that the site's male users were experiencing. And Cross describes how these bots became or grew into ostensibly perfect women designed to fulfill male desire without all of the inconveniences that actually come with autonomy and actual female needs and wants. And so, in this way, the bots are like the, the fantasy Victoria of Victoria's Secret, or um, uh, Vivian James, the cartoon mascot of Gamergate, which we'll get to later. And all, all of these figures provide a kind of cover and justification for misogyny by creating a female figurehead that can lead the charge of whatever misogynistic charge is being led. Um, so I thought, instead of actually starting right away with the Ashley Madison bots, I definitely want to get to those, but I thought maybe we could look at the story of Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Cross uh, emphasizes very strongly in this article is the connections between consumerism and consumerist culture and these kinds of uh, sexist and misogynistic fantasies. And I think it's hard to imagine a more explicit example of that than than Victoria's Secret. So of the examples that Cross provides, and I think to figure out what is misogynist about Victoria's Secret is a little bit more complicated Hmm. because... What we have here is a fictional woman, this fantasy Victoria, giving men permission 
to either buy or require their girlfriends to buy things that will be sexually pleasurable to the men. Uh-huh. So that we've got a couple of uh, there are a couple of links to the chain, and there's also an assumed use, which I just don't know sort of empirically whether it is true that Victoria's Secret customers are men purchasing for women, or whether it's women purchasing for themselves or women purchasing for other women. So I think that the assumption that it is misogynistic mm. betrays our sort of narrow heterosexual script, even yeah. if that turns out to be the majority right, actual right, script. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the, I think that we can shed a little light on that historically. Um, and I'll just read an excerpt here uh, what uh, what Catherine Cross has to say. In her groundbreaking book, Backlash, which reported on the 1980s and its anti-feminist politics, journalist Susan Faludi documents the origins of Victoria's Secret. In 1982, Roy Raymond, a marketing executive, opened the first store in Palo Alto, California. Part of the game, Raymond told her, was to make it more comfortable to men. I aimed it, I guess, at myself. Given that the store sells women's underwear exclusively, This foundational notion is very much worth keeping in mind. The fictional Victoria was used to put us at ease, but also to ground a fiction that was meant to be consumed by men. And I was very curious about this. I'd never heard the origin story of Victoria's Secret before, so I I did a little bit of research. Mm -hmm. And it turns out Roy Raymond ran the store, and it was very successful as a place where men were meant to feel comfortable going to buy intimate apparel for women, whether mm-hmm. significant others or otherwise. However, he nearly ran the business into the ground and, in fact, ended up selling it for just a million dollars. That I know from the social network. Is that in the social network? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot that detail. <laughs> well, it turns out that the reason the business had been successful for the period that it was successful mm-hmm. was not that it was a comfortable place for men to go and buy laundry, but rather that it was the first place where women could find laundry that existed somewhere in the space between the super frumpy department store type and the honeymoon-only, incredibly sophisticated and fancy French type. So he accidentally stumbled his way into this middle market Mm -hmm. Laundry that turned out to be extremely popular during a time when you know, a sexually liberated generation was coming of age. Mm-hmm. So when he sold the company, the person who took it over recognized that and immediately abandoned the male shopper mm-hmm. focus that's and went straight into female shopper focus. I don't know if that's true anymore. You know, I don't uh, like you. I don't know the statistics about men versus women shopping at Victoria's Secret, but I do know that Victoria's Secret sells 30% of the women's underwear that's bought in the United States. Whoa, that's so much underwear. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of underwear. Um, so so I, I think you're right. I think it's a little bit complicated. The, the relationship between the brand and misogyny is a little bit complicated. But I could imagine that, I mean, it's not only men who need to be told that their sort of day-to-day misogyny is okay. So I wonder, I think it would be much harder to have the Victoria's runway show, which is pretty explicitly aimed at heterosexual men, 
if this was, uh, you know, if the thing was called Mike's Demand instead of Victoria's <laughs> Secret. Um, and in that, even as it's messaging to men that they have permission from a woman, woman it's also messaging to women that what they're doing is for them. Even if what actually brings them to the store is that they feel like there is some sort of expectation that, you know, their undies match their bras on, you know, when they pick someone up at a bar, they're affirmed that at least everyone else is there because they, like Victoria, are doing this out of some sense of um, autonomous desire. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is, I think, one of the central themes of the article is at what point does this uh, this created uh, artificial male-focused desire mm-hmm. turn into an attraction and a compulsion for women right. in real life? Right, right, right. Uh, right. I mean, I think that the twist here is that uh, there are... There is both the moment in which it turns into a compulsion for women such that a woman feels that she has to have sexy lingerie... Um, but also that going into the store feeling perhaps like a little bit of a gender traitor she wants to feel. Mm. She also needs that messaging. And I'm not actually convinced in any way, despite what I'm saying now, that buying lingerie makes you a gender traitor, but just to the extent that uh, I think that um, women's self-presentation is always fraught. Because I think I think it is hard to be a woman getting dressed in the morning uh, and not conflicted to some point about to what extent your choices are based on your own desires mm-hmm. and to what extent are they based on an expected gaze and how do those two intertwine. So it doesn't seem particularly helpful to say that buying lingerie is sexist or buying lingerie is, um, is a great feminist act uh, if you know that the consumer is still going to have, going to be sort of anxious about that mm-hmm. either way. Well, and that's the, the complication of it is I often used, I think, as a shield by companies who are accused of sexism? Mm. Who can point to the complication and say, "No, we're not. We're not sexist. In fact, we're supporting feminist ideas." And so often, you know, often the accusations are turned on their head. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and what's true again is that it's not that it's untrue. You know, I'm sure that there are many people for whom. Uh, going into a Victoria's Secret and picking out something um, that makes them feel good about themselves is a uh, an act of rebellion in some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can never talk about sort of individual acts of consumerist rebellion in in isolation. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about Ashley Madison? Yes. <laughs> um, so when we talk about the creation of a fantasy which then morphs into reality. Mm-hmm. I think the strongest example clearly is the focal point of this article, which is Ashley Madison. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that along with all the names that were leaked in the now infamous Ashley Madison leak, also a good deal of Ashley Madison's source code was leaked. And so investigators were able to reveal certain features of the design of the website, which were, to many people, shocking. Mm-hmm. And one of these features is the uh, overwhelming dominance of bots. Um, automated female profiles that were designed to contact ma- male users on the site and encourage them to 
remain on the site, mm -hmm. to communicate with them. Um, to, to pay. <laughs> pay, right, exactly, to pay money. And it's insidious on several levels because not only is there the fact that Ashley Madison, the company, was duping its users into paying money to talk to imaginary, imaginary robots, mm -hmm. but also the business model of Ashley Madison was such that essentially users paid to communicate. So if a user actually had an affair and that online communication stopped, it was bad for business. So what Ashley Madison wanted was for its users to be continually communicating and never actually resolving the communication. So what the bots were able to do was not only to create all kinds of imaginary women for a site that desperately needed female members, mm -hmm. but also it was able to, to take male users who had found actual female users mm -hmm. and distract them such that instead of going off and having an actual affair and maybe leaving the site, they would continue to chat with mm -hmm. these robots and therefore continue to pay Ashley Madison. So there were several, several layers of, of deception here. Um, what I think is interesting is that my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that that was actually part of the, uh, the hacker's motivation, that they were taking down Ashley Madison not because you know, cheating is unethical or anything like that, but because the company was, as I said, defrauding uh, its consumers by making them think that there were actually women who right. potentially might right. them. Right. Yeah, and yet somehow in the media what becomes interesting is, oh, there are millions of people having affairs out there and now we know their names. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we're just not particular. In some ways it's just not surprising. Right. Um, the expectation that the company Ashley Madison be sort of ethical and loyal in its dealing with mm -hmm. its customers is a little bit ironic. Um, yeah, no, you're right. How, you know, why, why should we all be so surprised about this? I think that what I'm so interested in is sort of the posture of these hackers who are so hurt, um, essentially that they and men would be lied to. It's sort of an interesting twist on blaming a woman for being a tease, where Ashley Madison, mm. as this like great woman company, was teasing all of these married men um, into thinking that perhaps there was an affair around the corner for them. And so the way, even though, you know, the point, as Cross points out, is that this is not a company that was started by a woman. This is a company started by a man who knew that he needed a fictional woman to sort of legitimize the practice and mm -hmm. not make it seem sort of like gross and seedy. Um, their reaction still feels very gendered to me, that, mm. they've, you know, mm. that they've been let on. That's interesting. And so the, so the motivation for the hack is a feeling of being betrayed by women, um, even though what they're really being betrayed by is phantom women. Right, and I think the thing, it's not that I think that the, the hackers didn't know that there were men behind the company, uh, but that this posture feels familiar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what really lies at the heart of what Cross is trying to get at with her discussion of, of the bots is, let me see if I can find this excerpt. So I'll just read this couple of paragraphs here. She writes, to put another way, this fictional Ashley Madison played a role identical to that of the site's bots. She was meant to sell a fantasy 
to be a woman without all the inconvenience of actual aspirations and feelings. In this way, she was of a piece with the Victoria of Victoria's Secret, whose secret is that she is not real. So I think the thrust here, what Cross is, is the, the, the story that Cross is weaving for us, is this notion that the bots became, in the eyes of the men who were interacting with them, real women, mm-hmm. but real women who were perfect for male desire in a way that actual real women never could be. Mm-hmm. And that uh, as men view more and more bots or women who seem to fill those criteria of perfection, standards and expectations of actual women change. Mm-hmm. And therefore, behavior changes. Mm-hmm. And over time, what began as a totally manufactured fiction becomes, in subtle or not so subtle ways, part of our culture and society. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be frank, what this reminded me of was porn. Um, and I don't mean this necessarily from a kind of categorical anti-porn perspective by any means, but I think it seems empirically true that when you have an industry creating narratives and that industry is overwhelmingly dominated by men, which is becoming less true, but which has historically been very true of porn, um, and they are literally directing women and creating, um, telling women what they should say that they desire, um, that is appealing for male consumers, um, and then also seeps its way into the actual sexual expectation mm-hmm. of like real women in real bedrooms without cameras. So, can I ask, what's the difference between the totally artificial, fictional woman created by a site like Ashley Madison mm-hmm. or the imaginary Victoria, mm-hmm. Victoria's Secret. What's the difference between that completely non-existent woman mm-hmm. versus a woman who's cast into a TV show or a film in a role that's clearly intended for male consumption in which she acts according to male interest? Is there a, me- a meaningful distinction between that real but fake woman versus a totally fake yeah, I mean, I think it matters that one is a real human being. Um, and look, I don't know enough about sort of behind the scenes, the autonomy of like women on a sitcom. Um, but I think the, to the extent that a, uh, a male writer has to actually imagine instructing an actual woman who he knows to say these words, that's going to be a point of resistance. And then I also think that... Um, women who are instructed to perform, whether that be in, you know, an Oscar-winning movie or on a sitcom or in porn, um, are able to sort of, uh, to resist and act and shape the roles that they are given. Um, so yeah, I think that that matters, but I think that there is sort of a, uh, I, I took the point very much that the expectations that we have of women who, uh, of, of scripted women, um, make their way into the uh, unscripted life. Uh-huh. I wonder if there would be any empirical way of, of approaching the social effect of perceptions of a fake woman. Because I, I, I think what um, the, the implication mm-hmm. at several points in this article is that the effect of these totally fake imaginary women is in fact just as powerful and just as strong as 
the impact of real women who are, in one way or another, coerced into playing a, a oh, I see. Role. I would agree. I guess I was taking your question of what is the difference in sort of ethically as an observer, what is the difference stands. Right, but which I is an important yeah. question, uh, but, but it, looking at just purely at effects. I mean, I could imagine that it's... Uh, in some ways worse when you have real women. I think, you know, Ashley Madison is interesting that people didn't know that the dots weren't real. Um, at least it seems for a while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of how political parties sort of create their ideal woman and how the GOP has in its attempt to sort of push back against this war on women reputation, um, come up with, you know, good Republican women who are saying, no, that's a little crap. Um, what I, you know, the GOP really has my back. Um, we were talking a little bit that there was this uh, attack out on Obama of this uh, woman, you know, basically pretending that, like, Obama was her ex-boyfriend who'd really let her down. Um, and so that's sort of the fictional version. And then we do have these women who rise to prominence in conservative politics because they're willing to say exactly what all the men would like to say, but it's more powerful from yeah. a woman. So yeah. we've got, you know, the Ann Coulters and the um, Phyllis Schlafly's uh, who give, who allow men to point to a woman and say, I'm not sexist because she said this. Yes. And that's a sure way to rise to the top of Fox News in a hurry. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you could say a similar thing about African-Americans uh, in conservative circles. It, it is not surprising that conservatives seek to tokenize the sort of marginalized people who pick their team um, and push them into uh, prominence. Uh, you know, that sort of seems in some ways inevitable. And, and then there's sort of a question to be asked about to what extent are those people, we've been sort of drawn this neat line between their, like, the fictional Ashley Madison bots and then their real people. We see all the time with sort of, uh, you know, the wives of male politicians, the ways in which they seem to sometimes sort of push against uh, the scripts that they are given, Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless serve to legitimize. They're sort of, uh, it's their real politics and they are also scripted bots a little bit. Right, right, right. Where's Carly Fiorina (laughs) fitting? I mean... Look, she probably, her interests are probably actually best served by a sort of conservative fiscal policy. <laughs> um, you know, women are not, you know, there are a lot of different women out there, but. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk, uh, let's talk a bit about the third member of the trio uh, from Cross's article. We had Ashley Madison, we had Victoria, mm-hmm. and we also have Vivian James. And uh, this is the, well, this is another character I was completely unfamiliar with mm-hmm. uh, before reading this story. Um, but she emerged out of Gamergate, right? Which, uh, do you want to say something about that? My understanding of Gamergate is cursory at best. I mean, most of what I know about Gamergate, um, unfortunately, comes from seeing the ways that its supporters have sort of viciously gone after uh, friends and colleagues I care about a lot, including Catherine. Um, but my impression is essentially that Gamergate is a excuse for terrible misogyny and transphobia against uh, women in gaming um, that has sort of existed under this facade about being about uh, impartial reporting on gaming. 
and and, and that manifests largely as sort of online harassment. Right. Uh, right. And it's focused around particular online communities, right? Which yeah, I think it's gaming communities. But I think what's also maybe important to point out is that uh, one vision of this is that this is a a problem about technology happening only on technology. And I sort of push back at one point about the idea that something can be only technology, like the things that you read on the internet hurts just like the ways that you read on you know, a piece of paper. Uh, but this has also led to um, doxing, which is essentially when uh, someone's private information is shared online, their address, their phone number, often their dead name. Um, and then with, and Catherine has written really wonderfully about this, um, terrifyingly, but wonderfully on feministing about how that information is essentially uh, all the all the ingredients for a bomb thrown into an angry crowd, and then when someone starts calling, you know, making false reports to the police, so that the police invade the home of someone whose information is given out, oh. it's very hard to sort of assign responsibility to the person who revealed the information, even though clearly that was the instigating factor. Yeah, yeah. Is there what's the legal status of this? Those kinds of situations. I mean, I think that the law just hasn't figured out what to do about online harassment yet. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, there are so many issues here. I think that some of the behavior is clearly illegal, um, even under sort of existing law, just like existing harassment law or stalking law. Um, and the issue is in part that of people being under-resourced, um, of, you know, lawyers not being really sure what institution to take on because mm. um, you're you know you're looking for deep pockets um, as a lawyer but um i also just think that you know when Catherine has written about this too that uh if your information is publicly available somehow it's hard to make a case legally that providing that that posting that information for danger is uh is right. in and of itself illegal even though it is essentially um facilitating this terrible harassment. Right, right, right. Huh. So, I'm not, I will say though, like I'm not like an internet lawyer, so I'm sure that there's a right, lot right, I'm missing right. there. Huh. Well, okay, so um, so the virtual, once again, yeah. bleeds into, the, into reality. Mm -hmm. And one way, one, another way that this seems to be happening with Gamergate is through the person, quote unquote, of Vivian James. Mm -hmm. And Vivian James is a cartoon character who was dreamt up by one of these online gaming communities as a kind of PR defense. Right? The notion was this group was being accused of sexism and misogyny um, because they were being sexist and misogynist. <laughs> and they didn't like that they were being accused of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they wanted to turn the accusations on their head. So. They came up with the idea of creating a figurehead, mm -hmm. in this case a cartoon woman who was supposed to be a gamer, a female gamer, the kind of female gamer that this group was insisting was very much welcome mm -hmm. within their community. The thing is, instead of using an actual female gamer in the way that the Republican Party might use an actual female mm -hmm. token um, for their PR purposes, well, this group decided that the best that they could do was to get a cartoon character who would be a totally unquestioning mouthpiece. 
Um, yeah, I thought that Catherine I, importantly pointed out that there there are women who are Gamergate supporters, but that they don't they can't quite do the job that um, Vivian is tasked with doing, which is to yeah. never question and never push back. Yeah, exactly. They're like so the Megan Kellys of Gamergate. Well, like, Megan Kellys. Most you know, most of the time she's loyal, but sometimes she sometimes she she remembers the ladies. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the way that that Catherine puts it here is, she says, the implications between Gamergate and sexism are obvious. Most of its targets are women and queer people. It delights in transphobia and whorephobia, and it reserves a special hatred for anything that remotely smacks of feminism. But Vivian James stands mutely over it all, which is bizarre in another way. There are women in the Gamergate movement, after all including a few developers, smart, accomplished women who, although they are sometimes trotted out as proof of the movement's lack of sexism, nevertheless do not occupy Vivian's pride of place. She has the one thing they lack, ultimate compliance. So again, just like in the case of Ashley Madison, we have a manufactured character whose one great advantage is that she doesn't have any of the disadvantages of a real woman, <laughs> right. which makes her very appealing to a group of men who are very interested in women as an abstraction, but who are not particularly interested in women as human beings with whom they can have a, a meaningful relationship. Right, I mean, it's literally just a stamp of approval. It is essentially a group of men saying this is woman approved without talking to a woman. Right, right. Well, and, and they've taken it a step farther in that this Vivian James now has developed into a very complicated character, pushed and prodded and pulled and stretched in any number of ways, including, as Catherine points out, uh, into pornography. Mm. Um, so the mascot that they created for themselves to prove that they are not sexist is now being used as a character in pornography made by this very same group. So it, it's a little tough, I think, to untangle all the layers of irony. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It reminds me of some, in some ways, sort of t tangentially of sort of the cool girl feminist in that it is, you know, not shocking at all that the most desirable woman that these men can come up with is a woman who gives them permission to be as misogynist as possible. That mm -hmm. that is like literally a turn on that they would actually like to sleep with this person. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the things that I have a huge amount of trouble with in sort of feminist organizing um, is how to deal with the cool girl feminists who, in an attempt to sort of appeal to male desire, are always insistent that despite their um, you know, despite their sort of general commitment to equality, et cetera, et cetera, like, don't worry, um, I'm not one of those, I'll never get you in trouble. Mm. Um, I'll never, uh, mm. I've seen this a lot in sort of uh, gender violence arenas, actually with some older feminists, um, where it's, I agree that gender violence is bad, but uh, don't worry, I would never, you know, I would never wake up the next morning and accuse you of rape. Right. That's a scary thought. Yeah. And she's also, I think it's important to note that she is explicitly anti-feminist. Um, and I think that that's very much understood as uh, 
I think that there's an assumption in sort of the Emergate logic that feminists are a sort of insular um, group of people to the extent that it is less a, uh, it is more a social identity than a mm. actual like mm. ideological mm. commitment. Right. Well, and this is, I mean, the, the great derogatory insult that um, the Gamergate community uses against their detractors is to accuse them of being social justice warriors. Right, 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 right. Which, in essence, is an accusation that you care more about your status and your ego yeah, than the actual than issues. The issues yeah. That, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's also a very brilliant way. Um, it, it's a very brilliant um, way to undermine um, people who genuinely really do care about these issues because it is impossible to disprove. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and I think that this is something, this is not, uh, without in any way giving Gamergate a pass, I think that the constant criticism within really any social movement is trying to vet out those who quote unquote really care and those who care about their platform um, and it's impossible to ever show that you are that you are one or the other right so the fact that there is such a thing as a bad apple means that by association it's easy enough for people in Gamergate to lump all of their ideological opponents into this uh, this catch-all term yeah I mean I don't uh, I don't mean to suggest my in in any way that you know maybe some of the anti-gamergate activists are bad apples and so therefore they can use that to sort of spoil the whole barrel but just that it is this is a, a mechanism a um a sort of strategy of discrediting um activists that has i think used all over the place mm -hmm. and gamergate is just sort of like the latest iteration of this right I think what's also interesting is that essentially what that criticism is is that the the issues you are saying you are you care about are mere pretense. When in fact Gamergate, I think, is doing sort of a laughably bad job at keeping up this facade that it's about yeah. games journalism. Yeah, well it's curious. I mean it's 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 as though they're incapable of looking in, in a mirror. Mm. Because uh, I think it's it's very difficult for uh, for Gamergate members. I, I don't know how to, <laughs> how to refer to the participants. It, I, um, my assumption, my uh, understanding is that it, it must be very difficult for them to imagine the kind of commitment of purpose that mm. uh, an activist actually feels. Yeah, that's interesting. Because yeah. for them, the issue is so distant and abstract and incomprehensible, how could anyone be motivated uh, so strongly to, mm. to pursue those issues? So in a way, I'm, it must be absolutely natural for these people to assume that there is inauthenticity in, in the movements. Yeah, I mean, the only extent to which are not and I also, I, I don't want to sort of speak outside my, my knowledge of the issue, which frankly, again, it's like almost entirely through Catherine's writing. But um, I think it is possible that there are Gamergate people who are very genuine and that they're actually deeply misogynistic. 
And I think that even the sort of pretextual story about Gamergate is itself based in misogyny. So even if you took Gamergate at its word, but the sort of like founding, you know, like origin story is that um, a woman was sort of using her sexuality to get, you know, like positive reviews, um, which is in itself like a deeply sexist trope. It's like peeling back an onion, isn't it? Yeah. Why don't we talk a little about solutions, responses, ideas, improvements? Um, we're, we're faced, as Cross has described, with at least a trio and, by implication, an onslaught mm-hmm. of imaginary and constructed women who perfectly fulfill the interests and desires of the men who designed them and who have a propensity to, or at least present a danger of uh, compelling or coercing real women into behaving in, uh, in similar ways mm-hmm. um, to their own detriment. So how do we short circuit that cycle? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we even, uh, I mean, to step back, and maybe ask the question in a different way, which is not how do we solve all of society's problems, but rather how do we individually inoculate ourselves against the influence of these kinds of, of conceptions and creations? I think that it is perhaps like too big of a burden to put on particularly any woman to say, be immune to... Uh, immune to cultural influence Mm -hmm. um and i think that actually that pressure is a cause of a great deal of anxiety for a lot of women i know Mm. who are constantly sort of picking at ourselves to figure out what is false consciousness which is just not really how you know human being works but it is very hard to figure out to what extent are our desires our own um as you were describing with looking through your wardrobe Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, I think that part of it is just recognizing that no woman can give you permission to be misogynist. And that's true for men and that's true for women. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean that none of these trickle-down of effects will, will occur anyway. But uh, I think recognizing that uh, it doesn't, even if Vivian were a real woman that who said all of the exact same things that would not be, that would not sort of absolve Gamergate of its sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting is that there's a sort of simultaneous, uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is a sort of common flavor of misogyny, but um, women are sort of held up as this moral, um, moral guide. So I think it's really interesting that the Ashley Madison bot, Catherine Gibson example, says that she used to sleep with her friend's boyfriends but would never sleep with their husbands. And it's her saying, I'm going to be just, I'm going to be unethical enough for to sleep with you, but I'm not going to be unethical enough that I lose my sort of mm. ability to comfort you that this is an okay decision mm. that mm. you're making. Um, and I think to sort of stop, uh, to push back on 
the idea that women are always going to be this uh, sort of the, the purer sex um, could actually do a lot of good for women. That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> Thing that I've just been thinking this entire time is I think that Catherine's so brilliant and I think that everyone should go listen to her and read everything that she writes and that anything that I say about what she writes will inevitably be worse than what she actually wrote. So. <laughs> well, thanks anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought this article was fantastic and of course uh, there is a link to it on the description uh, for this episode and I hope you'll go read it and I will certainly be keeping an eye out for her name elsewhere. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Benjamin Miller, and my guest was Alexander Brodsky. Thank you very much. And uh, this episode was edited by Alita Cooper. Thanks very much. Keep reading. <laughs>